Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academic minds and certain comics into conversation with others. Today we're going to be covering Kieran Gillen and Jamie McElvey's run on Young Avengers, alongside a comparison to Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz's run on The New Mutants, focusing specifically on the Demon Bear saga. We'll also be reviewing Ramsey Fawaz's academic text, The New Mutants. And without further ado, let's get started. I am Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'll be hosting today. I'm a lecturer at the University of Waterloo on St. Jerome's campus, and I am joined, as always, by Dr. Michael Hancock, an instructor at the English Department at the University of Waterloo. And I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. So before we jump in fully today, we have a few thanks to give. Uh, the first is to the Games Institute here for giving us some equipment and some space to record the pod. Uh, and we'd also like to give a special thanks to Ellen Papart and his sister for some wonderful contributions on graphic design for the podcast. So let's begin with a quick introduction to Young Avengers, courtesy of Michael. Submitted for the approval of the Three Panel Society, I would like to present Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's second volume of the second volume of Young Avengers, Alternative Cultures, collecting issues 6 through 10. The teenage superhero team as a concept has a long pedigree. Over at DC, in the, from the 60s, there's both the Teen Titans, who originally started as a team founded by the sidekicks of the company's major heroes, and the Legion of Superheroes, the super teens of the future, inspired and sometimes populated by Superman. At Marvel, however, the teen teams came later, and not from the world's greatest heroes, but from the comparative margins. The New Mutants spun off the massively successful X-Men in the 1980s, and the New Warriors debuted in the 1990s, formed largely out of disparate pre-existing teen characters who banded together. While they occasionally cross paths with the Avengers, there's never the same direct connection as between the Titans and the Justice League. In the early 2000s, Brian Michael Bendis revitalized the Avengers brand, leaving not just a space for a younger superhero team, but actual motivation for constructing such a team with Avengers connections. And thus, Young Avengers was launched in 2006 under Alan Heinberg and Jim Chum, with every member being associated with some Avenger, or in the case of their leader, an Avengers villain. In preparation for our podcast on the 2013 volume, I have read every Young Avengers comic there is, <laughs> which is actually an easier task than that description would suggest, as Heinberg had infamously long delays in his writing, and for long stretches the team existed primarily through crossover events, intersecting with Marvel comics such as Civil War, Secret Invasion, and Dark Reign. Heinberg's run ended with the nine-issue Avengers Children's Crusade, wherein team members Speed and Wiccan rescued their mother Scarlet Witch, and the franchise lay fallow for two years until Gillen and McKelvey signed on for their run. First, a disclaimer. I am perhaps biased when it comes to Karen Gillen. In his former life, he was a games journalist, and even after he left that for comics writing, he once answered a game-related inquiry I posted to him, and he was far more kind than he had any reason to be to a random aspiring game scholar. Uh, at Marvel, Gillen has had long runs as a writer on series such as Journey into Mystery, Iron Man, and X-Men, and is still a writer for their Star Wars line, while also doing independent work. Jamie McKelvey is a longtime collaborator with Gillen, starting with their strip Save Point for the PlayStation Magazine UK, see the video game stuff before was relevant, as well as the series Phonogram and the currently running series The Wicked Plus the Divine. Both series feature the trials and tribulations of superpowered young adults, which mean they may share something in common with Young Avengers as well. To speak to the comic at hand, Alternative Cultures is the middle chapter of Gillen and McKelvey's run on the book. I wish I could say that this was part of my own master thesis, that the middle volume constitutes an Empire Strikes Back in a trilogy, but the truth is it was up to me to pick which comics we focused on, and I kind of forgot how the run went. <laughs> uh, that said, even if the choice is somewhat accidental, these issues do contain many of my favorite moments of the run. Uh, the first volume of this run is essentially establishing the threat and gathering the team. Wiccan, the reincarnated son of the Scarlet Witch, attempts to use his quickly accelerating magical powers to bring his boyfriend Hulkling's mother back to life. Instead, he accidentally summons Mother, a cosmic horror bent on eating their souls and not above using their parents to help nor deceiving other adults in the process. Kid Loki, fresh from Gillen's other series Journey into Mystery, recruits a team of teens to help, including former young Avenger Hawkeye, the Grant Morrison creation Marvel Boy, and American Chavez, who previously appeared in the limited series Vengeance. 
though it's strongly implied Loki is doing this to manipulate everyone to his own ends, as he is wont to do. At the end of the volume, they successfully banish Mother, but at the cost of not being able to return home. The second volume starts with another former young Avenger Speed and a former junior X-Men prodigy working dead-end temp jobs. When Speed is seemingly killed by yet another former Young Avengers, sensing a pattern here, Prodigy recruits the rest of the team to save him. What follows is an intergalactic multiversal road trip featuring evil exes, devouring parents, and the slow, inexorable demands of future adult responsibility. TikTok. The Young Avengers are not my favorite superhero team team, or even my favorite Avengers-associated superhero team team. Uh, Avengers initiative characters are very dear to my heart. It's also not my favorite Gillen series. I can't put into words how much I love the Loki run of Journey into Mystery, but it's a great look at 21st century young adults in a superhero world. It has more openly queer characters than any other mainstream comic book about superheroes I could name. And there are things McKelvey does with the art and panels here that is simply amazing. Uh, to conclude, I can't say any more than this is a series worth reading. Uh, and now Anne is going to give us a, an introduction to the new mutants. All right. I didn't compile an extensive intro, but uh, left us lots of stuff to talk about. But I'll get us started anyway. So New Mutants is a spinoff of Uncanny X-Men, what, the first of what will become many, many spinoffs over the year, creating an entire comic book franchise, which has now, of course, become a multimedia franchise, incorporating film, television, cartoons, video games, toys, and on and on and on and on. When the series was first created in 1982, it was a sign of the tremendous success of Uncanny X-Men under the reins of now-legendary writer Chris Claremont, who by that time had been writing the series for a little over six years. New Mutants was created by editorial fiat. Both Claremont and series editor Louise Simonson have recounted being initially unenthusiastic about creating the team, but were compelled to do so by Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Regardless of this, the series proved popular with fans and includes several classic stories, including the one we're going to read today, which rival anything else in the X-Men canon. It also continued and in many cases actually improved the X-Men franchise's representations of gender, racial, physical, and ethnic diversity. The original New Mutants team is notably female-dominated and features characters of Vietnamese, Brazilian, Scottish, and Native American descent alongside a single white American male. Later iterations of the series would also incorporate sexual diversity, but that's only something that's hinted at in the era we're going to be looking at today, which we will possibly talk about a little bit later. The New Mutants has a large ensemble cast and combines action-adventure with emotionally charged interpersonal conflicts. Both series also use what's sometimes called the mutant metaphor to represent issues of difference, prejudice, and belonging that relate to both teenage experience as well as more general and more diverse experiences of otherness. As discussed, today we're going to be looking at four issues of the original New Mutants series, which were originally published in 1984. Um, specifically, we're going to be discussing issues 18, 19, and 20, comprising what's become known as the Demon Bear Saga, as well as issue number 21, the double-sized slumber party issue, which introduces, in the first substantial way, the character of Warlock. All of the issues are written by Chris Claremont, with very lovely and very innovative art by the great Bill Sienkiewicz, which we will be talking about at length, I am sure. So as mentioned in both of our introductions, these are texts that are kind of famous for dealing with representation in um, possibly progressive ways, certainly unusual ways compared to what was going on in-house at the time and almost now in the case of Young Avengers. Uh, I thought maybe that would be a good place to, to start us out here. Maybe starting with Young Avengers again. Michael, can you talk a little bit about the significance of Young Avengers in terms of its representation of queer youth? This is built into the series from the beginning. The original series has a GLAAD award. I know I can point to academics. I wish I could remember the name of the academic, but I can point to academics who have looked at their original relationship as even homonormative. On the other hand, it is maybe the only, the only Marvel case I can think of of male superhero gay characters who are have a long-term relationship. The only DC equivalent I can think of is Midnighter and Apollo, and that's that's a different thing. Yes, and has been discussed in certain academic. And especially near the, at the end of the run, Gillen is very overt that this is a team of primarily queer teenagers, and I can't think of any time that's been done in mainstream superhero comics. So that is very different. Do you think it's... um? When we talk about representation, to what extent is the book revolving not just around queer characters, but about, say, queer themes? Uh, like, 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 to what extent is queerness a part of what makes Young Avengers what it is? 
I think this run does that uh, a little better than most of them. I'm not sure it becomes as overt. It's more to take a scene that I think often gets referenced at the very beginning of the series. Uh, Kate wakes up in the bed of a boy that she doesn't remember the name of, and she has this moment where, like, I should feel ashamed of this. Oh, wait, no, I shouldn't. Right. And, okay, that is not a queer relationship, but I think it speaks to the approach that they are aware of the larger context, but no, we are, this is us. We're not, we're not going to fight for this because it's who we are. Well, we are going to fight for this, <laughs> but by existing, not by. In a series like Champions, this would be a very, that is Mark Wade's Young Avengers, yeah. sort of. Uh, in a series like Champions, they would be very, it would be very much an issue of the week kind of deal. That is not the approach here. The wonderfulness of that scene is that she's in this strange environment with this strange boy in outer space. And yeah, that thing where she's, I should be ashamed, but actually this is everything I'd ever dreamed of is wonderful because that's the voice of a lot of superhero comics fans who hadn't gotten to enjoy that kind of scene in comics. And we should add that her saying that is combined with some, what would we say, cheesecake of of Novar, like dancing yeah. to the music yeah. with yeah. his skivvies. <laughs> that is... Frequently a role Marvel Boy plays yeah. in the series, the, the beefcake. Which is not something Sorry. I'm complaining about in the least. And we're sutured into Kate's perspective in that scene. We have a shot of her eyes and then the shot of him. So we're looking with her at him, mm-hmm. which, as you're saying, this wasn't this isn't a queer relationship per se. It's a heterosexual relationship. There's a queerness there. Yeah. If you're a male reader, you're sutured into Kate's gaze looking at Marvel Boy. If we, if we compare that to the relationship between um, um, Teddy and, wow, what is Wiccan's first name? Billy. Billy. Thank you. <laughs> Billy Kaplan. I, I always forget, too. I'm I like, know. Billy, Tommy. And, and they call, yeah. <laughs> they're all, all a bunch of Y names. All, right. all very, like, kid names. Yeah, they've got cutesy boy names, and I yeah. always get them mixed up. <laughs> well, this is one of the things I noticed, and maybe coming back to this issue of queer representation. As you said, there is a very sex-positive scene um, in a heterosexual relationship. I don't know if this is just me thinking it, but... Did you find that in contrast to that, um, Billy's relationship to Teddy is maybe less overtly physical? Mm-hmm. And is that appropriate to like the age of the I characters or is that something agree else? with that, especially if, you, especially if you trace it out to the history of the characters, yeah. that this is, li- they're, what, this is five years of them at this point. This is the first relationship trouble they have ever had mm. depicted in the comics, pretty much. And it literally took... Uh, a god of mischief and one of them resurrecting their mother, the other one's mother as a demon to put any sort of barrier in their relationship. Right. So and what do you think's happening there? Like, like is Gillen not wanting to push that hard? As counterpoint, yeah. there is more boy kissing boys in this series than any other superhero Marvel comic I could name. Yeah. But it's still not, it's not a lot. Maybe you could trace this to the fact that Kate and Marvel Boy are the older characters on the team. Right. That's true. Well, I think I think maybe what I'm kind of implying here is but, that there's a, a, a chronological progression in terms of what a writer can get away with mm-hmm. in representing versus facing backlash, which kind of segues nicely to the New Mutants. Well, we're, we're talking about... Or sorry, go ahead. In terms of what they can get away with, um, I've read uh, Gillen and McKelvey's breakdown of this first issue. They wanted to do Novar naked in that first scene. And we're alone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking in the era where Batman's penis has been removed from comics history, uh, and has become like an insane collector's item these days. Yeah, which I think is and fun. this is, and we're talking five years after this series. Right, or, right. Is it? Yeah, I think it's a very compelling argument, especially with the earlier series of Young Avengers in terms of yeah, Billy and, and Teddy's relationship. To be being very... absolutely clear, they address uh, the Gillen run at the very end, but I don't think it had been very far into it when the essay was written. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they are not taking that into the sand. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the newer Young Avengers series takes some of those criticisms to heart, which were criticisms that existed among the Mm -hmm. fandom as well, which I'm very aware of. Um, And that's part of why they have them kissing, and they have them kissing specifically in public too, like on social um, media, posting pictures of it, celebrating the images. I do know that Young Avengers was really embraced by a set of fans that Mm -hmm. weren't as vocal or didn't have any reason to be vocal or a space to be vocal. Sorry, which one of The first one? Even, even the first one, yeah. The mm-hmm. fact that, oh, we do have queer characters. Right. We can embrace this. Mm-hmm. In terms of the limits of that series, though, in terms of its representation, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to point out that the relationship between Novar and Kate is much more explicitly sexy than the relationship between, between Wiccan and Hawkling. 
there's even a scene in this volume of Young Avengers where they're in each other's bedrooms late at night and they're like, mm. ooh, this could be construed as being yeah. too sexy. Yeah. So so they, and, which, house. you know, is a, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. self-conscious comment. But I will say that it's nice also to have two male characters whose primary relationship is that they're both very sweet. It yeah. is, it yeah. is. Yeah. And I mean, I, it does play against that stereotype yeah. of, of like... um is homosexuality or something like that. It doesn't. I mean, you brought up like Midnighter and Apollo who are a bit more of a deviant, different kind of... Mm-hmm. I mean, another relationship that... I mean, we're talking about just pre-existing gay relationships in comics, Shatterstar and Richter. Yep. And I think that would predate Young Avengers. But um, yeah, a little bit, right? Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't think it was overt in Peter David's run oh, until that's, X Factor. That's possible. And that's around contemporary with us. Yeah. Someone else who's is going to get us for that. But anyway, one of the things I did want to say, though, that I do wonder with this Young Avengers series that we're talking about today, whether kind of the chasteness of their sexuality is a bit of a concession to the audience. Mm -hmm. This couple is also very popular among straight girls. Yeah. And straight girls tend to be a little bit more comfortable with the kissing part and a little bit less comfortable with the reality of gay sex part. Okay. As a stereotype, I fully admit that's not necessarily true. And certainly slash fiction contains plenty of graphic sex, but there have been many criticisms of of slash fiction and the slash community, which is dominated by heterosexual girls as being exploitative of gay men to the extent that it's appropriative of that experience Hmm. while not being realistic to that experience. Okay, so two um, interesting sort of entailment relationships uh, in the relationship Hulkling and Wiccan. The first one is that Hulkling is floated in this series as literally being a manifestation of Billy's fantasy. What does that do in terms of the, the queer representation that we're seeing? I mean, I've read, as I've said repeatedly, a lot of Young Avengers. Um, basically, Hulkling has two story beats. He is either the Skrull, Cree, Prince who is supposed to unite the people and doesn't is not interested in doing that at all because he has no connection to those cultures, which is an interesting representation thing, mm-hmm. which is not carried up in this series at all. In this series, his primary role is he is the uncertain boyfriend. And how about the fact that um, Hawking is a shapeshifter? What does that do for uh, the same metaphorical representation? Well, there's a lot. I mean, if you look at characters like Mystique, I would say there's a history of gender fluidity and shapeshifters. Uh, Zavin in the Young young Runaways Runaways does similar things and they make very explicit comparisons between Zavin and Hulkling in miniseries crossovers between them. Mm -hmm. I find Hulkling's shapeshifting to be interesting in the fact that it's not really a factor in the story particularly. And I mean, there's so many sexy things you could do with shapeshifting, which again... Many people have done in slash fiction, I hear. Well, even female um, characters in mainstream comics are, are often sexualized yeah, in shapeshifting. This is true, too. I have a theory that there's a hesitancy to sexualize male shapeshifters and male robots in comics, which I think holds because <laughs> certain of the writers of them are afraid of what those things mean. And certain female fans <laughs> really want to see that happen. But that's just an opinion that I have. But it is interesting the way that that's not played up. And I, I wonder whether some of it has to do with not wanting to play into certain stereotypes, though. Uh-huh. I mean, even wanting to not make him gender fluid so much, because the character of Zavin, you brought that up, and I don't want to get into a whole tangent yeah. about it, but yeah. I mean, that the representation of that character in Runaways has been criticized as being sort of like, it's supposed to be a story about trans identity, but it uses this like fantasy metaphor, which isn't very representative of actual trans experiences, and it's sort of a textbook yeah. example of how superhero comics don't always handle difference perfectly because they use these fantasy metaphors which absolutely can warp things a little bit in again ways that don't end up being representative right they ended up being a bit uh, exploitative or appropriative so i wonder whether that's part of it or not or but i mean this chasteness of the relationship is Uh it's interesting and i think you can explain it as being a function of their characters it seems very true to their characters for them to be this way it's this is how I think of them as characters. They I are mean, chaste and cute and adorable. Also worth noting that other than Prodigy, there isn't anyone acting on, other than Prodigy and them. There is no one acting on same sex impulses. You yeah. know these characters are queer. Right. They don't actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if it's a bit of a defanged queerness in that way. I mean, queerness 
we're going to talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about the narrative and the style of the book and the queer intersections there as queer being a theme of this comic. But again, defanged queerness in the sense that we don't have that explicit queerness. We don't have explicit mm-hmm. homosexual desire being expressed on the pages of these comics, except in the form of these kisses. Well, I mean, maybe it's a good time to, to turn to X-Men and kind of talk about sort of the history of that, you know, those fantasy metaphors and intersecting with real world difference and some of the problems there and some of the potentials there. Yeah, I think with New Mutants, we're looking at a very different world in, in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's your take on it, Anna? How, how is it representing <laughs> my take on contemporary? Well, as I said in some of my brief intro to New Mutants, it's a very diverse series. I mean, the character base is very, the fact that it's female dominated is very important. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very rare superhero team that has more female characters than male mm-hmm. characters for much of its 1980s run, or all of it. I shouldn't say all of it. I should check that first. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Should uh, be all uh, of it. Until mm-hmm. the series. Uh, okay, so yeah, technically right before Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it gets male dominated. But, yeah, but yeah which, which, you know, is very... Until the testosterone cable. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that represents, represents quite a contrast <laughs> with, you know, the first issues of the all-new, all-different X-Men, which is... So all-new, all-different X-Men is the X-Men that was relaunched in 1975 with the more diverse team that, you know, of Storm and Nightcrawler and Colossus that... You, most fans are probably more used to seeing now. So compared to that team, which at the time only had one female character in Storm when it originally relaunched, this is a much more diverse team. Mm-hmm. And it's self-consciously that way, I think, too. And has some different sort of elements that weren't present in that series in terms of, you know, intersectional identities. We have a character like Rain, who hails from Scotland. She's got a religious difference in terms of being mm-hmm. raised very this religious conservative background which she's always feeling guilty and angry and afraid of things like demons and stuff because she's raised in this background that makes her very distrustful of these things. But she's also a werewolf, which, you know, she's got guilt about that in a certain way, but also enjoys that experience. And we can certainly talk about that a little bit in terms of being an interesting sort of bodily thing. It's a funny series because as much as I can say all of these things that are good about it, we were talking a little bit before the pod, I kind of hate all of the characters in New Mutants. (laughs) But I mean, we can talk about that and about, about a representation of the teenage experience and how maybe they're supposed to be unlikable to a certain extent because they're teenagers. But I feel like I'm getting really off topic. Teenagers are unlikable. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, maybe you want to talk a little bit, Andrew, because you're somewhat of an X-Men scholar and somewhat of a Claremont scholar about sort of the history of of X-Men and this theme of of difference that's that's bound up in the mutant metaphor. I feel like you could speak to that quite well. Uh, A little bit. Um, It was a running joke at Marvel that that Claremont really wanted to make his characters female and and not just his his superhero characters, but like um, Mm -hmm. background characters. Uh, and Michael, before the podcast, was telling me about um, an image from Strike Force Moratory, uh, where they were making fun of the fact that Claremont's strategy is always to include a woman. Uh, Marvel openly acknowledged this. They have a, like a, an editorial comic where um, Al Ewing, I think it was, was making fun of the fact that Claremont always says, is there any reason this character can't be a woman? So it's not just his main characters, it's his background characters, uh, which makes it kind of impressive in terms of, of again, just representation. Um, I, I guess my question for you, Anna, would be the extent to which uh, he lampshades that uh, versus the extent to which it's not even a thing. It's just we've got a lot of female characters. This one's a werewolf. This one's the leader of the team. Is it sort of a, a post-gender portrayal that Claremont is going for? Or do you think he's sort of similar to what we're talking about with Gillen making representation part of the narrative? Well, it's certainly conscious that representation is part of the narrative. I mean, going back to that mutant metaphor that I mentioned briefly in the intro, I mean, since the original X-Men, but certainly much more heavily emphasized since the relaunch in 1975, the X-Men are a team of mutants who fight for a world that hates and fears them. They're victims of persecution. There's been a lot of parallels drawn to various real world differences and right struggles. People often do the... Professor Xavier is Martin Luther King and Magneto is Malcolm X comparison, which is problematic in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Most notably because Magneto is a villain and leads the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which, you know, that's pretty big disservice to the very valuable things that Malcolm X did. But besides that, it's been criticized as being a metaphor that engenders appropriation. You know, it's right. Nightcrawler is a mutant, but Storm is black and a mutant which those just aren't the same thing in terms of real life where mutants don't actually exist 
So it's been argued that the mutant metaphor allows readers of X-Men comics to misidentify themselves as the other. You can fantasize that you're a mutant with these special powers and enjoy that experience and fantasize about being different and special and all of these things while perhaps being that, you know, hegemonically powerful straight white male audience, which is the main audience for these comics. And Claremont is a straight white man writing these comics, right? Mm -hmm. Which... Again, to be clear, that's not a problem necessarily, and I'm not trying to suggest that that is a problem necessarily, but there is something about the mutant metaphor that can be a bit dangerous there. And we'll certainly, I think, talk about that in terms of new mutants and one of the problematic story elements that happens at the end of the Demon Bear saga. Right. But we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. I'll keep you in suspense about that. Yeah, I think the question is the idea of um, selling appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, this is the emotion they're giving. You give them you know, two bucks and the comic gives you the feeling that you're an oppressed minority. Yeah. That's problematic. If we, we spin that back to Young Avengers, um, this is a book that has an insane reputation amongst the queer community. It really is central. Yeah. It, we, we should say that Gillen's run also won a GLAAD award. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, as far as the mutant as a metaphor for general marginalized groups, one of the ways I think the New Mutant series works better than most incarnations of the X-Men as just purely a mutant as metaphor for teenager, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. these are all characters who aren't used to their powers. Mm -hmm. Every single character on this team has something about their power that they can't control or that they don't like or that... and. I think that works really well as a metaphor for what it's like yeah. to be a teenager and yeah. growing up and finding parts of yourself that you don't like. And the out-of-control bodies. Yeah. And, yeah. You know. I mean, it's it's not a... It's a pretty common superhero teen thing, but it's it works. And pretty right. common, common across like genre fiction and fantasy literature more general. I mean, you know, yeah. werewolves as teenagers, vampires as yeah. teenagers, yeah. You know, all of these things. You know, it's not that X-Men originated these things, but it was one of the big popularizers of, of this kind of technique of representing teen experience, youth experience through these fantastical metaphors of bodily difference and bodies out of control and werewolves. <laughs> One of the things that's kind of distinctive, uh, especially about the, the New Mutants run, is a lot of formal experimentation, pushing the comics form in order to tell certain types of stories and through um, the application of certain metaphors. We'll see a little bit of that in the Young Avengers as well, but I thought maybe we'd start with Sienkiewicz as the more sort of obviously avant-garde artist uh, and what he's bringing to a um, otherwise very mainstream Marvel title. Yeah, it's really, I feel like I'm quoting the Explain the X-Men podcast, um, shout out, but um <laughs> But there's really no way of overstating how different Senkovich's artwork is to what came directly before and to what was being, so what was present in, in mainstream superhero comics at the time. The 1980s was a time of tremendous experimentation in the genre, but at the same time, even within that experimentation, Senkovich stands out. I don't even know how you would describe the visuals of Demon Bear for someone. Please go and look at them because this is a podcast that's obviously not the best for directly discussing the visual representation since you guys can't see what we're talking about. But they're highly experimental. Um, he does a lot of experimentation with panel boundaries, that type of thing. I mean, his representations of the bear itself. It's sort of this creature that's all teeth and all claws with this body that's almost this big black shadow that dwarfs the characters, that swallows the page. It's a really, really, really impressive creation that, again, I'm not doing justice to it, just describing it on a podcast. But yeah, do you guys want to jump in and try to try to? <laughs> an impossible figure. It is like sometimes literally causing bleed between panels. Mm -hmm. and it, I mean, my absolute favorite is... I, I maybe wouldn't go quite as far to call it a running gag, but the map, I'm putting air quotes here, of the Demon Bear's <laughs> plane mm -hmm. has a representation of how much of this plane that it has conquered, and it is basically a Jackson Pollock painting. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love that, the idea of we're taking this formal concept of a map and turning it into this abstract, weird encompassing that the Demon Bear represents. Yeah, his ability to, to um, do surrealism without losing the story. And I know some people would disagree on that. <laughs> but but without generally losing the story is impressive. Like, even if you look at something like, the say, the scale or size of the bear. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's the size of a bear, and mm -hmm. other times it's the size of a skyscraper. Uh, and it still feels 
physically threatening, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you a sense of his ability to at least ground it, I would say. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And when you said some people have been critical, I've been sometimes critical of <laughs> well, Sienkiewicz's well, artwork sure. for being just, I don't want to say too crazy because that's not what I mean. I I think what I'm kind of getting at in terms of my criticism of his artwork, which Again, I want to be clear. I love it to death. You can't not love it. You can't love comics and not love this artwork. That would just be crazy. It's amazing. But at the same time, so in his book about Jack Kirby, Hand of God, Charles Hatfield describes what he calls the difference between narratively focused drawing and illustration. And he defends the exaggerations of Jack Kirby as being primarily narratively focused, although that might be something you could argue with as well. That might be sort of his prerogative to argue that they are that. Whereas he says that, illustrative drawing draws attention to itself. It's more something that you're supposed to dwell on that specific illustration rather than the images being in service to the sequence, right? In service Mm -hmm. to the movement of the plot. I think at times Senkovich's artwork doesn't move the plot as much as it does become illustrative. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but I think we could question how well it works in something like the slumber party issue that follows demon bear which is a lot more character oriented Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of moments in that issue which i find just really hard to follow some character will be saying something and his design of faces and even hair can change a lot between panels it's very you know rain's hair is sometimes a buzz cut and sometimes sometimes it's longer it's it's especially a problem in that issue where it's supposed to be a big deal that she has a makeover yeah so some of those plot points can get kind of spoiled by his investment in his own illustrative technique. And to an extent, that's bad storytelling. Because if I can't tell which character in the panel is Rain, I can't really follow the story. Yeah, there's the pragmatic component. One thing that I will give credit in part to Sinkovic, and in part just to the original design of the new mutants, that my first introduction to these characters was cannonballs uh joining of the x-men in the 90s and he looks like he is a different person yeah uh, that this is not a team of attractive superheroes this is a team yeah. of teenagers right and i would more visual consistency would be nice <laughs> we but... talked about the cheesecake of marvel boy at the beginning oh, yeah. we have for and... most of the slumber party issue sam guthrie uh, cannonball yeah. like, appears yeah, in a that's towel fair. But he, he it's, does go skinny dipping. It's, which, again, that's another thing. It makes no sense. The issue before, it's snowing and they're trapped in a snowstorm. And then the next issue, they're going swimming outside. Yeah, we know, we, well, we know enough time has passed. We know she's, that Danny is yeah, still Danny's. recovering from her wounds. We know that she suddenly has parents again. And yet she's, there's, she's living at the school. Minimum four months <laughs> would have had to pass for it to be warm enough to go swimming outside. And, and for Sam to be going she, around yeah. with a towel all night. And yet she's still pretty hurt. Anyway, I was going to say about Sam, though, because you were saying about, you know, this being not an attractive team of... Uh, Okay, I mean, Sam is is very, like, he's drawn very thin, very sort of, you know, like, he's... And yeah, I would a, say, I'd say it's fair to say that Sam isn't drawn as being stereotypically attractive. And there's there are some also some panels of well, Mag, Magma's basically naked, yeah, which is like ah, teenagers being very highly sexualized. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that's part of the point of why they are very clear to say, oh, Marvel boys in his twenties. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, I wonder if it gets back to that conversation about the chasteness of the Wiccan huggling relationship and them just not wanting to be open to those charges of sexualizing teenagers, which I, I mean, I think is fair, but it's odd that that's where they decided to draw the line when I mean, they have really... no problem doing it with teenage girls in their comics that are mm-hmm. being published concurrently with this one. Well, I mean, my my biggest complaint against house style at Marvel in particular these days is they have a tendency to draw women with the bodies of women yes. and the face of children. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's really uncomfortable uh, at times. Um, but I was going to say uh, on the other side, of it, I, I think that connection between narrative and form is really interesting. Um, the, the next arc that Sinkovitz will do in New Mutants is actually the one that introduces Legion, uh, a character who um, has dissociative identity disorder. So you can do a lot of like... A perfect conduit mental. for his artwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then if we bring this to Young Avengers, um, I, I think we find it, it's not that experimental at all until we start dimension hopping. And then we can see McKelvey doing some really cool things with actually, the Actually, I'll, I'll disagree with you on that because I think... Is it the second issue that does things like that Marvel Boy fight scene? 
but yeah, the series starts out with that, yeah, like great fight scene of, you know, but everyone yeah, that, should that, be a superhero. It's awesome. I mean, uh, one of the things I know, I have read a very in-depth interview that uh, McKelvey and uh, Gillen did for CBR uh, that gets into their philosophy for the run. I know that their one of their kind of personal watermarks for Marvel quality at the time was the uh, Aja and Fraction uh, Hawkeye run. Mm. And yeah, you can kind of see, okay, they're taking some tips from that kind of layouts that they do there. Uh, one of the things that also comes up in the article is that McKelvey wanted to make a point of doing presenting every single action scene in a different way. And I, I'm, my mind is drawn to the one of the early fight scenes with Marvel Boy, which is a schematic that with numbered layers that gets explained. And that happens before the dimension hopping part comes Okay, up. so the bullet point is I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> which is acceptable. Um, what else do you see? But I mean, Dimension Hopping does involve a lot of weird panel stuff that's fun. Uh, as Anna mentions, the teen heroes in the New Mutants are drawn in a very um, aesthetically, um, let's say, unpleasing. I think Michael actually brought that up, to be fair, but, but we agreed on it. <laughs> but yet still indulging in some cheesecake tendencies. Well, Ileana yeah. in particular, I would say. Yes. But, yeah. Uh, and that is fair. How about um, um, our, our, our beautiful teen cast? In the it's, it's all cake. All cake, all cake, all teens, all time. I mean, we what what do we feel about kind of representation of bodily diversity in it? I mean, I I really like the portrayal of America Chavez. I, I like the, I feel that there's been a lot of attention paid to the styling kind of her of her hair and her body, which I really appreciate. She's got curly hair, and which is I, done well, which is not and it is a That's lot right. less. Uh, male gaze sexualized in her yes. original costume. Yes, absolutely. So, Which look that up there. if you have not seen that. Yeah. Some of the things that I love about sort of her visual representation, I love the. I actually wrote a blog post about this years and years ago, but the way it's a very identifiable outfit. So she's always switching these different elements of her outfit, but always with sort of the red, white, and blue and some sort of Captain America star theme going on. Whether it's earrings, it's her shoes, it's a jacket, it's a shirt, it's hot pants, whatever. He's able to draw this character wearing hot pants without making her overtly sexualized. He does that by making her thighs muscular rather than exaggerated purely for purposes uh, of sexuality. I I know McKelvey has said that part of the design there is that she's supposed to stand out from the others too, that they are wearing costumes and Mm -hmm. she is wearing stuff that could pass as regular clothes, Mm -hmm. which Which, is a nice nice identifier. And which gets us back to our very first episode of this pod, where we talked a little bit about the cosplayability of a costume mm-hmm. like the new Batgirls costume, which was one of the motivations in, in the design of that costume. Miss America's costume is wonderfully cosplayable. You could go mm-hmm. to TJ Maxx winners, buy this stuff and wear it. This is very achievable for a teenager reading this book, which I think is one of the wonderful things about it and makes, at least on the visual level, her one of my favorite characters in this series. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. I mean, what about the prettiness of them? Do we see that as a problem? Do we see it as a good thing? How do we qualify the prettiness of these characters? We complained a little bit in our saga episode about Fiona Staples' artwork yeah. being too pretty. Is that a problem with Jamie McCallie's artwork? Um, in this... If it... Yeah, if we were going to say that that is a problem, then this is a problem in similar ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some really... I don't know, I just let's just call them really beautiful like close-ups of Teddy's face at times mm-hmm. that, that really do seem to be trying to create a, a you know stunning visual aesthetic saying here's here's beautiful man. I mean uh, yeah. that's not something well, you that see is that a commonly. difference. Yes, that is a significant I mean that is also something that Staples does very well. Yeah. Uh, but in both cases, like beautiful men is not a common Especially superheroes. No, unless it's associated with like um, um, raw physicality. So you'll see like Superman puffing out his chest all the time, but not the same way. And I, I think there's something there to maybe give credit to. The freedom and the invitation. We talked about that opening scene with Kate and Marvel Boy a little bit earlier. But I mean, that invitation to gaze at these characters in a certain way that's not always allowed in superhero comics, I think is sort of what we're getting at. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the prettiness of the characters can be in service to that. I mean, mm-hmm. the fashion... I guess fashion forwardiness of them, the at least like a con- the attention to <laughs> contemporary youth haircuts, that kind of thing, you know, that's in the series. Part of that, and I mean, the title of the first volume is Style Over Substance, right? I mean, yeah. that's all part of that invitation mm-hmm. to gaze at the characters in a way that's sexualized and queer and, you know, not that way that we stereotypically get in superhero comics, which is either 
women are objects and men are chest puffed out uh, punching machines whose yeah. sexual characteristics are completely subsumed by their muscles although, although that can have a sexuality on its own but oh, and, but although again it's uh, relevant to note these are teens that are being sexualized yes, well actually true. maybe maybe channel in a different direction anna you've done work on something like riverdale um, which is a teen high school drama of a school that is populated entirely by supermodels and Barb from Stranger <laughs> Things. How does this compare to something like that in terms of the visual aesthetic of these, these oh, teenagers? Oh, goodness. I, that would get us off into a whole other... I mean, are we... Well, I mean, and then there's the issue that a lot of Riverdale's aesthetic is also informed by Fiona Staples again for her... Yeah, that's true. true. That's sort of what I was thinking of. I was like, well, we could talk about the Archie comics in that sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know what I want to say about that other than that it fits in with that long legacy of like sexualizing a particular teenage girls. And I don't think Riverdale is immune to that mm. as much as Cheryl is a really fun character. She is so highly sexualized. Mm. It well, sometimes makes me uncomfortable. Our, and I guess shirt that the, is like not capable of staying on. This is true I mean, too. This is true too. Well, but this I, is, I, I mean, it's not, it's relevant there that Riverdale's uh, writers include people who have worked on things like Gossip Girl. Right. And, yeah. Well, there's always going to be a problem there though, where we kind of do this post-feminist <laughs> thing of like, this is equal opportunity exploitation, but just because of the nature of what's exaggerated and the history of representation, um, yeah. Cheryl's boobs and Archie's shirt are not the same thing. Nope. It just isn't equivalent. There's a power dynamic for sure. There is. And I would not say that I think Riverdale absolutely has a handle on that anymore yeah. than... So this is our, our backdoor first episode for our Riverdale podcast. Yeah, well, there's already a lot of really good Riverdale podcasts, so the market might be saturated on that. But... I, I'm sure they are. Um, so, so how does it work with McElvey then? I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out. On the one hand, I'm okay with it being kind of this, this aesthetic fantasy in keeping with YA literature in general. But as Michael points out, there are some underlying problems there that we should be at least conscious of. Well, I mean, in terms of that sexualizing of teen characters, though, I mean, again, I think it's important to point out that they're not sexualized in the way that's typical of superhero comics necessarily. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean yeah, even compared to like Sinkovich, this is less like especially female exploit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also significant that um, the characters in Young Avengers do have a sexual identity and potentially sexual agency. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. In a way, the New Mutant characters are utterly sexless. And uh, other than yeah, the there's crushes. also like a big age difference. I, or not a big, but like an age difference yeah. between those. Yeah, sex. for sure. These uh, are older teens. That has to factor in as well, of course. So one of the unusual threads that these two comics have in common is um, a, a little, I, I would call it a touch of H.P. Lovecraft uh, in, in this notion of, of cosmic horror. Uh, maybe let's start with New Avengers as a contemporary manifestation of that. Michael? Uh, yeah. I know one of the taglines that Gillen has presented for this series is existential horror becomes cosmic horror. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that Mother, the being that Billy accidentally creates uh, is this devourer, this creature that not not just devourer but uh, infector that uh, and that warps itself into how the series approaches the adult teen relationship. I think that's always a really interesting thing to explore with the Young Avengers that they were founded on this idea that Marvel doesn't or the the Avengers don't do teen sidekicks. Because Captain America and Bucky, that is not entirely true because Captain America has also had multiple Buckies. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> it was still founded on this idea that there's an antagonistic relationship between the young Avengers and the, and the Avengers Avengers. Mm -hmm. And I think co the cosmic horror of that, that adulthood is this all-consuming force. Uh, I think this series draws on that, that they can't go back to their childhood homes or where their parents yeah. have died because then the cosmic horror of their existence will come into play, the trauma of their relationships with their parents. Um, and it also leads to, as we we're, we talked very slightly about before, about the formalism, that the idea of this horror beyond our comprehension is represented by the destruction of panels and so forth. Right. There's, a, there's a wonderful scene where uh, mother eats a text, a narrative text. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say there's... All right, to go really quickly, um, my take on the original Lovecraft 
left uh, cosmic horror is that he basically uses cosmic horror as a way to explore threats to to white male rationality. That his characters are confronted with something that can't be thought of logically, and it destroys them. Uh, This also seeps very heavily into Lovecraft's own racism. I was going to say, you're not going to suggest that H.P. Lovecraft is racist. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that... And some texts are more of his are more overt in this than others. But I think this is a nice, if we're going with mutant power as a metaphor for teenagehood, cosmic horror as a metaphor for teenage relationship to adulthood works very nicely too. Well, it's kind of yeah. reversing what you're saying is present in the Lovecraft yeah. story. Which is where, yeah. yeah so which is the only way you can the, really do Lovecraft. The creeping, consuming horror in this case is the heteronormative world represented by the parents. Right. Right, which is a nice... Uh, and hmm. kind of represented not as well by Patriot, yeah. which we'll talk about. But it's also yeah. Captain America, too, right? So it has yeah. that legacy element woven yeah. into it. Captain America becomes their dad in a few scenes. Yeah, uh, and it's... Yeah, I, I do... One of the effects of Mother is that anyone who is a parent can be turned against them as a shambling horde of attackers. Mm-hmm. Anyone who is an adult can't see what Mother's doing, or at least... Uh, an adult in their hearts right well it speaks though and we were talking a little bit before the pod about this to again those benefits and kind of limits of these kind of metaphors the thing i really love about the mother thing is how explicit it is and how Mm -hmm. literal it is but i mean that's one of the wonderful things about it i think but it also speaks to those limits in the sense that the young Avengers can have this wonderful queer teen experience where they're hopping between dimensions and going and having pancakes and noodles and exploring themselves and their sexualities and doing all these things. And yet at the end, the Marvel universe kind of goes back to normal again. Once the threat (laughs) of mother is expunged, Mm -hmm. the young Avengers series ends and they have a big party, which is both a celebration and a farewell. And they have not. And it's part farewell. It it is also notable that, our demon bear saga ends in a party the next year. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I mean, uh, but what I just wanted to like, uh, emphasize is just Marvel's always trying to do these like more diverse young teen heroes and they always kind of get shunted to the side. They well, exist in yeah, kind of like is, a different universe. They're dimension hoppers. Yeah. And this is... They never take over from the adults. I think you were complaining yeah, about that absolutely. earlier. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, one of the things uh, Gillen and McKelvey said when they were the young avengers is a series where people come in and do a run and then leave no one has come back there is no this is the end of them in what 2014 the characters get used the concept is basically dead yeah Uh, the new mutants demon bear saga because it has a kind of legendary thing that happens where two white people get absorbed by the demon bear uh, and at the end of the story it sort of spits them out and now they're native americans uh so like like this is if nothing else problematic what do you do with that we just had halloween so it sort of reminds (laughs) one of the debate about inappropriate costumes (laughs) and you know treating indigenous identity as surface level physical transformation sounds a lot like all the reasons that you know dressing up as an indian for halloween is problematic i mean it's suggesting that identity works in a way that it doesn't work, which is, it's a red face kind of a thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's bad. It's just, there's no other way to, and, you know, they've talked, they talked about this on the Explain the X-Men podcast, where they talked about this story in particular, they didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. Probably just, it was something thrown in there, and maybe they weren't meaning to be offensive, and then they just have to run with it, because this is the thing that they did. And Yeah, and this is from a writer who created, um, arguably, two of the most prominent three of the most prominent native characters in comics uh, in, yeah. in the form of Warpath, Daniel mm-hmm. Moonstar, uh, and Forge, uh, all within sort of the, the realm of the X-Men universe. Well, I think it makes sense then to talk about a little bit then about this story as a Native American story, about this being the story of Danny Moonstar and a cultural mythology specific to her mm-hmm. and how well we think that works or doesn't work because as a counterpoint to that very problematic thing of the two characters being turned into Native Americans, or as Rain, I believe, calls them Red Indians. Rain is <laughs> yeah. is not encultured, so we can say that as an expression of her being, you know, a character who is raised with a certain background and not necessarily the voice of the writer. Characters are different than the writer. Keep mm-hmm. that in mind, those of you who are doing literary analysis. And Rain is frequently presented as saying kind yes. of big and Exactly, things. exactly. Yes, so that's not that a nice character person. for Rain, despite that being, you know, obviously a racist comment. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, I have mixed feelings about this. I thought a lot about it this week, sort of leading up to the podcast about whether this is just a totally appropriative, problematic story, since we have such a kind of fusion of different stereotypical symbols of Native Americanness sort of woven throughout this story. Even the part where they're fighting the demon bear. So we have the bear uh, in the Badlands, which is not really... And the Badlands are drawn a little bit more like Monument Valley than the actual Badlands. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of kind of things just mashed together in a way that isn't necessarily as thoughtful as it could be. On the other hand, that's a bit of an unfair criticism, given this comic is from 1984. It is so far ahead of anything else that was being done in representation in superhero mm -hmm. comics in that time. And the character of Danny Moonstar... I think is a really great character in most ways. You know, I like she's her a, a lot better she's, than the rest of the team. I do too. Mm -hmm. She's my favorite character on the team. She's a complex character who cares about her cultural heritage and wants to be loyal to it and represent it, but she's not defined by that in totally stereotypical ways, the way we see for a lot of other characters, and even the way that we can say for some of the original, again, the all new, all different X from 1975, where a lot of them are kind of defined by. Just having a catchphrase yeah. that's, you know... Let's, <laughs> let's shout out some things in my native language and that's... Yeah, good. you know... If I, we expand that a little bit, could we read this story as um, Danny Moonstar's culture coming to claw her back from the white world that she's gone to? Do you know what I mean? Because I, I think there's a way that you could lean into that negatively. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, if this is a representation of her culture, it is mostly a negative one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, and a terrifying one. Primitive, stereotypical. It's complicated by the fact that her parents return at the end of it, but also don't seem, don't have much chance to do anything. No, no. They're, well, they're I think we could also complicate it, though. Ugh, again, I go both ways on this. I've, again, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I just, I'm very undecided about it. The beautifulness of the story, the, like, monumentalness, you know, the impressiveness of the bear is like a celebration of... A culture in a way, although again, it's very non-specific and I do think it's appropriative and I do think you can't look past those problems. This is not written by a Cheyenne person mm -hmm. and it's not in reference to any specific elements of Cheyenne culture that I'm aware of. No, it's constructed. At the same time, yeah, like again, the counterpoint to that is that it's these things mashed together and it's not specific enough and it's doing what superhero comics and... X-Men comics are very guilty of this, treating foreign locales as and foreign cultures, and I say foreign not because Native American people should be thought of as foreign, but that's, you know, they're thought of as others in, you know, the hegemonic white American society, that it's used as scenery, it's used as color, right? You know, we go to the Badlands because that's an exciting place to have a story, not because we're telling a serious story about Native American identity. So exoticism. Yes, I mean, it's, exactly. It's I should have just said exoticism. That would have been a much easier way to say <laughs> what I used all of those words to say. I mean, I would, I would fight for it in terms of being a good horror story too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair. I, I think they do the, I mean, maybe, honestly, I'm, I'm second guessing myself because I think it, a lot of it comes down to atmosphere and a lot of the atmosphere is owed to St. Kevitt's. Yeah. The hospital scenes feel very yeah, intense. Yes, that, that is true. Anxiety inducing and, yeah, thing the, that's out there in the dark. And we haven't talked about the colorist, but I think I really like what the colorist does in that hospital scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for today's episode, we're doing another academic review. Uh, this time we're going to be having Anna look at Ramsey Fawaz's The New Mutants, which has some very obvious uh, relation to the material that we've been studying today. Thank you, Andrew. So yes, this is a review of The New Mutants, the subtitle Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. It was published by New York University Press in 2016, so a relatively new book. So the title of New Mutants is partly a reference to a 1964 essay by literary critic Leslie Fiedler, in which Fiedler describes new forms of literature that envision, quote, the transcendence or transformation of the human into a race of mutants. Fiedler views this transformation as both fantastical and real. Elsewhere in his essay, Fiedler claims that the hegemony will recognize these mutants as members of the increasingly influential counterculture. The New Mutants is also, of course, the title of a long-running Marvel comic book, several issues of which we've been discussing today. This dual reference serves Fawa as well, as his book's central topic is the interconnection of post-war superhero comics with the same era's history of liberal, progressive, and radical thought. In this, he interprets the mutant protagonists of post-war superhero comics as countercultural heroes who both reflect contemporary upheavals and imagine future changes, even as they keep the world safe from the egomaniacal machinations of Doctor Doom. 
Across seven chronologically and thematically organized chapters, Fawaz charts what he describes as the evolution of the American superhero, quote, from a nationalist champion to a figure of radical difference, mapping the limits of American liberalism and its promise of universal inclusion in the post-World War II period, which is quite a mouthful, so I'm going to break down some of the chapters for you a little bit more. Each chapter analyzes a particular comic book series or group of series as a reflection to as a reflection of and reaction to certain sets of historically relevant themes. So chapter one reads early issues of Justice League of America as evidence of an increased sense of international responsibility within 1950s American culture. Chapters two and three read early issues of the Fantastic Four in conversation with the Cold War, radiation fears, and the rise of second wave feminism. Chapter four reads space operas from the 1970s starring the likes of the Silver Surfer and the X-Men as reflections of a nostalgic longing for the previous decade's promises of transformation. Chapter 5 investigates the rise of working-class consciousness in comics from the 70s, and Chapter 6 reads demonic possession stories in several different superhero comics from the 80s as critiques of uh, the me generation's self-interest and overconsumption. Finally, Chapter 7 argues that the increasingly traumatic intergenerational and intersectional conflicts within the New Mutants series from the 1980s represent the end of an era, evidencing the decline of the post-war fantasy of universal citizenship in favor of a newly fractured, but also newly productively multiple view of American society and culture. Fawaz argues that superhero comics might be uniquely capable of exploring progressive and even radical themes and ideas. Throughout, he suggests that characters who are defined by their non-normative bodies and multiple identities, who continuously transform from one person or thing into another, are ideally situated to articulating anxieties and fantasies related to the changing nature of post-war American society and the changing boundaries of human identity and potential within it. Unfortunately, however, the same passion that makes Fawaz's writing so engaging sometimes results in a neglect of the presence of conservative values within and behind the comics being discussed. As a result, Fawaz does not always attend to the possible limits of superhero comics' supposed radicalness. This is, after all, a genre whose production and consumption has always been heavily dominated by straight white males, in which it is still standard practice to draw female characters in ways that reflect very stereotypical male fantasies. Although there is much value in Fawaz's efforts to emphasize the superhero genre's actual and potential appeal beyond that stereotypical audience, there is some dishonesty, I'd suggest, in suggesting that the X-Men franchise is a celebration of radical plurality, while neglecting the reality of how few women and racial or sexual minorities have written or drawn X-Men comics. It would have been nice to see Fawaz address these dynamics. There are ways and moments in which Fawaz's book does profit from breaking with the conventions of superhero scholarship. But I also wish that it had discussed some of that existing scholarship a little bit more. I think there are a number of instances in which the existing discourse on superhero comics and X-Men comics, of which there is much excellent writing already, could have been productively engaged with, which he, he doesn't necessarily do throughout. In the end, though, it's partly because Fawaz's book does so many things so well and so engagingly. I want to emphasize again like how engagingly this is written. He's a very good writer. Um, it's because it does these things so well that it sometimes left me wanting a little bit more. Fawaz makes me want to believe in the triumph of the mutant counterculture, and it's difficult to root against that vision, even if I remain just a touch skeptical of it. So by way of wrapping up our podcast for today, we thought we would ask our panel for recommendations on um, team books in, in the comics format. What have you got, Michael? I would like to plug Hopeless and Walker's Avengers Arena, because despite being a runoff or, or literally a ripoff premise that is very blatant about ripping off both the Hunger Games and Battle Royale, it is still actually fun and, about, uh, and gets into some really interesting team hero dynamics. I'd also like to recommend Runaways by Brian K. Vaughan and Alfana as kind of the Marvel renaissance of teen superheroes. Thanks. Anna? Oh, God. I feel like I don't have a teen-specific series to plug. I kept thinking though throughout preparing for this pod and talking about it, sort of memorable representations of some of these same characters in other, in other series. So I was thinking of the Excalibur series from the 90s, which features mm -hmm. Kitty Pride and Rachel Gray, who shows up briefly in the issues we discussed today, although we didn't talk about her. Um, and then I was also thinking of the Mighty Avengers series from about, what was that, like eight years ago, maybe? Which Sounds featured right. the Young Vision and Cassie Lang. I should have mm -hmm. looked up the actual numbers for you, but <laughs> if you can track that down based on my vague recommendation... I 
I think if you hit the owl doing run, you've gone too far, but that's yes. also very good. <laughs> anyway, it's the Mighty Avengers run that features Cassie Lang in the vision. I really enjoyed that run at the time, and I'd be interested in revisiting it, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. Nice. Uh, I will plug um, the original Teen Titans. Sorry, not the original. Technically, Volume 3, Marvel Wolfman and George <laughs> Perez's version. Uh, in its early years, which was very cool and did some really interesting things with pacifism as a concept. Uh, and then um, the more uh, obscure, deeper cut I would put in is for um, New X-Men Academy X. Mm-hmm. Not the early issues, which are not that great, uh, but when Yost and Craig come on as writers uh, and Paco Medina comes on as illustrator and then later Umberto Ramos, they do some really amazing storytelling and uh, appropriate today's podcast. You can actually see characters from our two books intersect because Prodigy is in it and so is Ileana Rasputin. Uh, and with that, I think we are done. Thank you very much to our panel once again, and thank you to everyone for listening uh, at home or on the run. We'll see you next time.